Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 128. In this episode, we're talking about Ephesians and Empire with Dr. Justin Winsenberg. Dr. Justin Winsenberg is Associate Professor of New Testament and Greek and the Director of the Honors Program at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. And he's the author of the book that we're talking about today, Ephesians and Empire, published by Moore Seebeck. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Reverend Daniel Parham and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Daniel, this was a fantastic conversation with Dr. Winsenberg about Ephesians and about empire critical studies. What were some of the takeaways that you had from this discussion with Dr. Winsenberg? I appreciated his uh, precision uh, in how he was articulating the mystery of like, is Paul explicitly subverting uh, the Roman empire tropes and, and framework? Or are we reading into the text in that way, given the current historical context that might have been there? Uh, I was intrigued by that as well. Yeah, it's a it's a great discussion, and, and Dr. Winsenberg sets up the conversation well, uh, describing some of the context for this this uh, this work that he's done, some of the debates that have taken place, and his work really kind of represents an interesting way forward, not least because he's addressing Ephesians, which is a, a text not often discussed in this broader conversation, but also with some of his methodological interests, some of the things that he brings to the conversation like speech act theory uh, that really uh, kind of opens up some new avenues for, for this whole larger uh, conversation. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Justin Winsenberg. Well, Dr. Winsenberg, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be on. I appreciate you having me. So we're really excited to talk about your forthcoming uh, publication with Moore Seebeck on Empire uh, and Ephesians and thinking about uh, what Ephesians might have to say about uh, Paul's critique of empire or, or lack thereof. Curious to set some of this conversation in, in context, especially for our listeners, what are some of the key figures and key conversations in empire criticism that would be helpful for our listeners to know to kind of situate this conversation? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, if people haven't kept up with the conversation, I don't blame them. It, it's It's been uh, quite extensive over the course of the last 20 years, but uh, others have noted that the conversation around whether or not the New Testament challenges or reinforces ideology of the Roman Empire. Uh, there were some scholars in the early 20th century that were asking some of those questions, but really like the first major monograph appears like in the 1950s. And at that point, it's it's um, it's a guy named Stauffer and it's his uh, Christ and the Caesars book. But at, after he publishes that, there isn't really a lot that happens until about the 1980s. And what's so interesting about the development of these questions about empire in the New Testament is they coincide sort of chronologically with the publication of some significant works in Roman history. So not even related to biblical studies. Um, so there begins to be publications that emerge on imperial cults and um, worship of the emperor and the imperial family. Uh, there's publications on sort of the Augustan era that emerge as well. And I think what happens is in some cases, New Testament scholars in particular are, are picking these works up and starting to generate questions about now that we know these things about this particular context in the Roman Empire, how might that impact our reading of the New Testament? So some of the, some of the, the first ones that develop are in the 1980s are uh, Pax Roman on the Peace of Christ by Klaus Wengst. And his, uh, his work sort of sets the stage for some of these questions. And then we start getting some, some major players that emerge and develop afterward. Uh, one of the probably biggest proponents of the empire in the New Testament discussion is Richard Horsley from UMass. And Horsley starts editing volumes where he, he pulls in authors from all over the place, and they end up contributing to various questions related to how the New Testament engages with the empire. So all this is happening in the 80s, and, and, and by the 90s, Horsley has a couple of major edited volumes uh, that are asking these questions. Um, and then 9-11 uh, happens, and, and there's kind of this myth 
in Empire New Testament studies that it emerged out of uh, the American invasion of Iraq. Um, that's not entirely true, as I, as I mentioned, some of these previous publications that happened prior to that. But what we can definitely say is that the field exploded after that. I mean, it really started to, uh, to develop more fully in the 2000s and the, in the 2010s, well, 2010s, 2010s. Um, and so I, I would say that in terms of monographs alone, not even speaking of, of journal articles, monographs alone probably tripled at least in the course of that time compared to the previous generations, we'd say. So there's certainly some questions as to could there be a relationship between uh, American invasion of Iraq and whether or not that's causing uh, New Testament scholars, particularly in America, to start seeing empire in the New Testament as they're experiencing empire-like tendencies maybe coming from America at that time. Yeah, thanks for that overview. And of course, thinking about how this applies to the Apostle Paul in particular uh, from there, of course, I think some of the popularization of this discussion occurs in the writings of N.T. Wright. Um, yeah. And and um, there's some back and forth that he has with John Barclay uh, over these issues about whether Paul is or isn't critiquing the empire. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that about that debate? So there, there was a, there's this sort of uh, mythical moment in Empire New Testament studies when, uh, when three, uh, three major players in the discussion, uh, N.T. Wright, John Barclay, and, and Robert Jewett, all had papers that they presented at this SBL meeting in the, in the late 2000s. And, uh, and at that point, I think John Barclay really established probably one of the most significant critiques of the, this field of, of imperial critical readings. Of the New Testament, and his was geared predominantly at at Tom Wright's articulation of it. Uh, what, what what's so significant about it is, is Wright had begun to develop uh, some some ideas about the New Testament, essentially using hidden transcripts in order to challenge the empire, and that comes from uh, this idea that basically there's a threat that the authors might be given persecution if they're not careful what they say. And so they end up critiquing empire, but they do so in a way that's a bit hidden and coded. And that began to become sort of the trend in imperial critical interpretations of Paul uh, and not just coming from right, but from others as well. And so Barclay in this infamous moment uh, essentially questions that on several fronts hermeneutically, but he also questions it historically, whether or not there was enough uh, enough things in place in the empire at the time that would necessitate that someone like Paul would have to be coded or quiet about his critique in order to avoid persecution. Um, and so th those two become sort of these, these representatives of these perspectives on empire in the New Testament. And so proponents who, who, who agree with Wright end up sort of reinforcing some of his views and, and developing off of it. And those who are very critical of Empire and the New Testament sort of often go on the Barclay route and, and say, uh, I'm not seeing Empire engaged anywhere in the New Testament. And to just appeal to hidden transcripts because people are being persecuted uh, didn't make any sense to him. And, and that's an important development for my project because what I, what I began to see uh, was that Ephesians in particular was being completely ignored in the conversation. Uh, in fact, some of those major volumes from Horsley uh, didn't include any comments hardly at all on Ephesians. And of course, that could be because people aren't attributing Ephesians to Paul, but, but Colossians wasn't necessarily given that same sort of treatment. So it raised some interesting questions as to why Ephesians was being left out. And at the same time, I was also becoming dissatisfied with sort of both of those views, the, the Barclay approaches and the, the Tom Wright approaches. And I started to see that maybe there was a different way forward in thinking about whether the empire or whether uh, the New Testament criticizes empire. So you mentioned that Ephesians is is largely neglected, and you, you talked about Barclay's kind of critique of this uh, whole enterprise. Uh, and isn't isn't some of that uh, criticism largely because uh, Paul had bigger fish to fry? Uh, and um, could you say a little bit more about that? And and how might that, for example, uh, provide some some rationale for why Ephesians, uh, especially given its uh, critique of the powers, um, is uh, is neglected? Yeah, John, that's that's a great question because uh, Barclay's position is essentially that Paul ignores 
the empire because he's more concerned with the forces of like sin and death or of spiritual authorities. And so ultimately he doesn't see Paul concerned whatsoever with the Roman empire and Roman political ideology, because he has, like you said, bigger fish to fry, uh, which has led to some interesting questions about Ephesians, because one of the main reasons why Ephesians has largely been dismissed from these discussions is because of its claim that uh, the struggle, right, is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers in the heavenly realms. So the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms. So this has led some to say, see, Ephesians is essentially reinforcing the idea that Barclay is pointing out, which is that how, how could Ephesians be critical of the empire when it essentially dismisses uh, there being any necessity to pay attention to earthly rulers? How much would you say maybe the the perceived absence of Paul speaking to empire is a very strategic move, right? To the, the fact that we know mm-hmm. that uh, Paul had dual citizenship, right? In, in, in these, in this essence. And so was it a str- strategic evangelistic move for Paul to not overtly speak against empire? And, and, and what is scholarship saying there? What are critics saying mm-hmm. in that regard? Uh, because I think that might be something that we could be attuned to in terms mm-hmm. of the arguments against and possibly not even reflecting that argument. Well, that's good. I, I think that does relate specifically to something in Ephesians in particular, and that is the idea that because Ephesians is often also dismissed in light of the fact that it's perceived to accommodate the empire, especially in places like the household code. So when you're talking about Paul and his strategies for maybe navigating the empire and for reasons why he might not mention it, um, some have raised the point that while well, Paul's not mentioning empire, certainly not critiquing empire, could be a strategic move, a sort of missional move, in order to not raise suspicion with Roman authorities. Um, and that definitely plays into interpretations of Ephesians as well, uh, when the household codes are most often perceived as simply accommodating the standard values of the Roman household. So again, it provides yet another area of challenge for thinking about what if Ephesians is seen somehow to, to criticize imperial ideology or to subvert it. And I, I, I probably should do more to clarify what I mean by subversion. But just for the time being, if Ephesians does that, we've got these hurdles in the way. Namely, it seems like it's actually accommodating imperial ideology rather than challenging it. So that could be one of Paul's strategies for actually uh, not speaking about the empire is to ensure that there's not undue um, pressure put on the communities to whom he's writing to. And so he's saying, no, no, we want to appear as if we're fitting in into Roman society. And so let's not, uh, let's not do things differently. Dr. Wisenberg, can you, can you delve a little bit more into the aspect of subversion and give us more context to that in relationship to what, what you shared yeah, it's an important question, and I think I, I've got to be careful to define it appropriately because it could, when I speak of whether the New Testament subverts the Roman Empire, it could misleadingly cause someone to think that what I'm meaning is, is the New Testament calling for some form of open revolt, even violent revolt against the Roman Empire. I don't mean that whatsoever. I, I think there's very little evidence uh, and I guess it depends on some interpretations, perhaps of Revelation, but there's very, very little evidence that the New Testament would call for such a thing. Um, so when I speak of subversion, I'm not meaning that sort of violent revolt. I'm speaking of ways that the New Testament speech acts might challenge or undermine or even uh, subtly mock <laughs> imperial ideology in ways that can be seen to uh, to provide a challenge to it, rather than some form of of about you know external revolt. Further diving in, uh, I guess <laughs> we could we could say into the deeper end of the pool. Can can you touch more on 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 this point of speech act and uh, give us give give our audience and give myself a little bit more context to this? Yeah, yeah, it's really important for my project because some of my dissatisfaction with the current discussions in the field have been that. Uh, it seems that a lot of folks who are proponents of the idea that the New Testament challenges the empire are often trying to re-examine sort of the words 
and and the um, we, we might say the reference to the words in the New Testament. And this is what's caused that reaction from Barclay and others who have said, well, I don't see the empire in the New Testament. It's not being referred to. Its ideology isn't being invoked. And then that's caused, you know, the others on the other end to say, no, 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 it's, it's being invoked, but it's, it's hidden and it's subtle. Uh, when I was in graduate work, I came across speech act theory for the first time. And, and it essentially is developed out of the UK. Uh, it begins with, uh, with John Austin. And Austin uses some terminology that is extremely helpful, I think, for trying to see why some of the current trends in Empire in the New Testament are are unsatisfactory to me. <laughs> so so what, what Austin does is he talks about three different forms of communication or three levels of communication, and he calls them locutions, illocutions, and perlocutions. And without getting too thick in the weeds, essentially what these are, are locutions are, you know, words that are used with sense and reference, you know, you can include the grammatical constructions of sentences, but illocutions are what someone's trying to accomplish or do with those words. So uh, the classic example that's brought up by speech act scholar is uh, the ice is thin over there. If we wanted to examine the locution, we would look at the meaning of each of those words. But then the question is, is why, why would someone say that? And what are they trying to do with that sentence? Because when you say the ice is thin over there uh, in California, my hunch would be that it would most, most definitely be understood as a, as a warning. For one, if there's ice uh, and it's thin over there, you probably don't want to go walking on it. Uh, ironically, in, in Minnesota, uh, where I'm at, uh, the ice is thin over there. It might not be a warning. It could be a directive. It could be telling the person that, relatively speaking, if you're going to drill a hole uh, with your auger in the ice to go ice fishing, it's relatively thin over there compared to being, you know, three and a half feet thick. Uh, so the question, the, the words are the same. The locution is the exact same in each instance, but the, uh, the, the illocution, what someone wants to do with the words are different. Uh, so that, that's, that comes important uh, as part of the conversation here, as does the sort of third level in speech act theory of perlocutions, which is what does the person hope to actually, uh, what's the hoped for effect that they would have upon the recipients with their speech act? Why, why I think this is so important for, for the empire discussion is almost always the battleground has been on the level of locutions in the New Testament. So does this or that particular um, Bible sentence or, or textual sentence refer to the Roman imperial authorities or ideology, or does it not? And what my project begins to explore is, is it possible to subvert without referring and without it being a hidden transcript, but with it being an intentional speech act um, that is actually more effective um, by using subtle speech acts and subtle languages on the level of the illocution, rather than just coming out and saying it on the sort of locutionary level of language. Uh, yeah, one thing I think I'll add about the speech act component that's an, important for empire is uh, something that I've just hinted at here. And that is uh, no one has really taken much consideration into whether the New Testament not naming Roman authorities or ideology might not be strategic to avoid persecution, but it might actually cause a subversive speech act to be more effective. Um, and that's something that I, I took from Quentin Skinner's work, where he mentions all these various forms of ways that people can challenge ideologies. And he says that speech act wise, sometimes it's actually preferable to not come out and be explicit. And that might not have anything to do with someone being afraid of being persecuted if they do. So uh, we, we know we had this uh, this meeting in the Twin Cities here, John, that you were a part of, um, and we were discussing this concept. And I think a, a colleague of ours, Ronald Vandenberg, came up with a fantastic example of this. He was sort of, we were sort of pondering, well, can we come up with a, an example of how how someone would want to challenge something, and it would be more effective without kind of coming out and saying it while not being afraid of being persecuted. And, and the example that Ronald brought up was, uh, let's go Brandon, right? Which is actually, it, it's, if you know what it means, it's quite explicit what it's saying. And, and now I, I guess we can't get too thick in the weeds with the politics here, but my, my hunch is, is that the strategies for saying it that way aren't necessarily related to the people who are saying it are afraid if they put it more bluntly, they'll be persecuted by their political opponents. Although I guess perhaps maybe some of them think that, um, but, but it is this effective speech act in a way that's not as effective if you just make its meaning explicit.
Um, and I, and I think about this often because I think maybe some of us have family members who aren't uh, of the same political uh, positions that we are. And I always think about how it's interesting when you're talking with a family member, and if you want to try to convince them to your political side, sometimes it's actually the worst strategy to be explicit about what you're challenging because they will immediately dismiss you. So it might actually be a more effective strategy, subversion-wise, to try to challenge your ideology without them putting you in a certain camp explicitly that will cause them to dismiss you. So I think those are two examples where we could see that it's possible that the New Testament might not name the empire on the locutionary level. It might not even invoke imperial uh, or ideal, imperial ideology on the locutionary level, but it might have illocutionary strategies of challenging the empire not to avoid persecution, but to perform a more effective speech act for its listeners. Part of the core of your thesis is that Ephesians has traditionally been neglected in uh, the conversation around empire. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give an overview of what you argued for in that thesis and, and to really flesh out like why is Ephesians important in the midst of uh, this conversation? Yeah, one, one of my reasons for bringing Ephesians into the conversation or for selecting Ephesians as my subject was that some of the ways that the empire discussion was taking shape in, in Pauline literature seemed to me to run into certain problems when we try to apply those same methods or arguments to Ephesians in light of some of the questions surrounding the authorship and the recipients of the epistles. So in other words, the Deuteropauline, so-called Deuteropauline letters were not really considered much in the conversation. Colossians was given a bit more weight than Ephesians and whatnot. But, um, but I started to think maybe some new strategies needed to be taken in order to bring these texts into conversation because they have some unique situations whereas the old sort of standard conversations around Paul and empire don't apply as well. And, and part of what I mean by that is, is one of the main questions lingering over Paul and empire is what do we know about Paul's personality, which of course is, is highly contested how much we know about the person Paul. But, um, and then the question is, well, would Paul, the Paul we know have challenged empire? Well, of course, now then you try to do that with Ephesians, and the minute that the Pauline authorship of Ephesians is contested, that question becomes sort of irrelevant or potentially irrelevant. So then we can't go in that direction. Um, there's other questions about, you know, um, not just Paul's personality, but Paul's text. So when we actually look at Paul's text and we, we look at the undisputed letters in his theology, what can we say about his theology as it relates to whether he would challenge empire? Well, again, if Ephesians isn't Pauline, uh, then we have no necessity to have to find coherence between the undisputed letters and the disputed ones. Um, so that's a little bit difficult then to engage on the question of empire. So what I began to ask was, how do the unique circumstances of Ephesians then require a different sort of approach to the empire question? And I think one thing that's been overlooked a bit, now I will, I will say Harry Meyer uh, did a monograph on the, the, some of the disputed Pauline letters as it relates to empire. So there had been some writing on this, but I found that, that, that the, the approach to these letters, especially the ones that are deemed prison epistles, um, raised questions that hadn't been asked of other Pauline letters. So whereas Barclay and others, I think um, Laura Robinson also made, made a major contribution, a fantastic article um, in, in NTS where she, um, she, she plays off of some of Barclay's points as well. But the, the challenge was this, there's no necessity for any, for Paul to have had to be quiet about critiquing the empire, even if he wanted to. Um, he never seemed to, to, to shy away from persecution. So if he really wanted to critique the empire, just come out and say it. But with Ephesians, of course, we've got the Pauline authorship questions, but also we have the question of, well, but the Paul that's depicted in Ephesians is in prison. So does that change anything? Um, because, and, and I think we could say, you know, with the five letters that are attributed to Paul that could be deemed prison epistles, and I'm, I'm including Second Timothy in there, even though I know it's not traditionally categorized as one, but the authors seem to be in prison when writing it. Could that have meant that different strategies needed to be taken toward critiquing the empire if the author wanted to do it because of the unique circumstances uh, 
Um, and now that raises major questions is, was this Paul in prison when he wrote? Um, was this a post-Pauling author in prison when he wrote? And I'm using the he there, you know, just as a, as a standardized assumption about what people think about ancient authors here. But um, would, the, would a non-Pauling author have written from prison using Paul's name? All these questions emerge and they require some sensitivity and some, uh, some, uh, some, some ways of addressing the question of empire in Ephesians differently than what the other Pauline texts have with it. That's one of the things I uh, appreciate about your work is that you 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 ask questions about what if, what if what if this was written by Paul and what if this wasn't and and mm-hmm. that has implications for dating and and of course when we're talking about dating we're talking about you know different Caesars and different yeah. imper- different imperial conditions and 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 so if there is empire criticism uh, how might this look different in different imperial settings and so I'm I'm wondering if you could speak to some of that dynamic that you that you work out in your in your thesis. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because what I essentially end up doing is I explore various aspects of the Roman imperial context in Asia Minor. And I do that because if, if we don't know that Ephesians was written to Ephesus, the wide assumption is it's written to Asia Minor. So I kind of just take that and run with it and say, okay, let's just assume it's written somewhere to Asia Minor. Um, how might the speech acts of Ephesians be heard differently in different eras, depending on what's happening with the Roman imperial context. And, and that's not something that's been brought into the empire conversation much at all, not only in the Pauline letters, but across empire in the New Testament. Um, I'd say maybe an exception to that is, is Revelation, because there's been a lot of work done to try to situate the potential anti-imperialness of Revelation within certain you know, Roman emperors' eras. Uh, but what I end up then showing was that uh, in some ways, uh, Barclay and, and Laura Robinson's points about the Pauline era very much so hold up. Um, there is some sense that the Roman Empire allowed for there to be criticism of it without the need to be quiet about it. And it wouldn't even necessarily uh, um, lead to any sort of prosecution or persecution. Um, what we end up finding, though, is that as the uh, Pauline era sort of uh, comes to a close and the post-Pauline era, and what I'm meaning now is just the, the mid-first century uh, CE, and, and as the first century comes to a close, some of those circumstances change, and we see the development of, of, uh, of various groups within Rome that are more sensitive to catching uh, treasonous-like activities. So what I start to spell out is, well, if you're living in Asia Minor at the end of the first century, which is some of the proposed dates of Ephesians, if it wasn't written by Paul, might that have necessitated a different sort of speech act approach than it would have during the Pauline era? And once we lose Paul's personality as a sort of protector, we might say, of saying Paul wouldn't have done, we can't say what a non-Pauline author would or wouldn't have done. So we, we can't now argue from a person's personality as to what you know, could or couldn't happen with criticism of the empire. So what I what I essentially end up discovering throughout the, my work is that it, it seems to me that contrary to the popular opinion with Ephesians, which is that the later that it gets, the more accommodating it is to the empire, um, namely for the reason being, well, there's tensions arising. Um, we can see some of that expressed in Revelation between imperial authorities and communities in Asia Minor. We can later see it happening in the second century with works like um, Pliny and and then if we get even later, um, Polycarp. And even if those aren't expressing, you know, precise historical narratives, they're certainly giving us a window into what some Christians thought about their conflicts uh, with Rome. Um, I think what we see is that as as that era begins to emerge, it, it, it becomes a different circumstance that we have to take into consideration on whether or not the recipients might have heard Paul's words in Ephesians. I'm using Paul there loosely just to, to speak of the author, um, whether they would have heard this as, as challenging empire. Another development that happens, historically speaking, is that the imperial cults begin to ex- explode in this region. And um, so I, I spent a lot of time with, um, with Simon Price and with others um, who've done some really good work there. And this is nothing new. In fact, I think anybody who's hip with the 
Empire New Testament discussion will say, oh no, here's another guy at it again, doing this imperial cult business. But I think what, what's justified in me exploring it is that Asia Minor in particular was a, was a hotbed of imperial cults in ways that are unprecedented in other regions. So what, what my work essentially does is it calls for um, empire new studies, or, sorry, empire new Testament studies to pay more careful attention to the way that various eras of the Roman imperial context might impact its imperial critical sentiments or not, and also the ways within which developments and things like imperial cults might apply in some texts in ways that it doesn't in others. Um, so I, I look at things like not just the imperial cults, but also just other forms of rituals to the emperor, um, because there's some distinct difference between imperial cults that were sort of sanctioned by Rome, and then other uh, other developments in in rituals and in and in um, altars and whatnot. And this is basically basically Price's work to show that that the further that we get into the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, it becomes a much more loaded environment. With the imperial cult so that some of the speech acts and Ephesians might have from those recipients have been heard to be sort of subtle challenges, um, illocutionary challenges to the imperial cults in ways that might not be the case in the mid first century. Hmm. Now, one of the things that you've already mentioned already um, are the household codes and yeah. how those may or may not be accommodating to empire, at least uh, that has been part of the conversation. Um, and so we know that you do some work there. You have a section dedicated to that uh, to that passage in Ephesians. Curious if you could tell our listeners a bit more about the the sort of work that that you do uh, outside of that, in terms of other other passages in Ephesians uh, that you look at the speech acts and how they um, may or may not be um, critical of the claims of the empire. Uh, yeah, I think one thing about my work that I had to be careful with is I, I could have chosen one passage to kind of hone in on as exemplary of the method that I'm using, but I, I found it to be more satisfactory to try to cover a wide range of passages in Ephesians. You mentioned the household code is one of those. That's one of actually nine passages in Ephesians that I address. Now, just to admit one, one weakness of that approach is that I'm not able to go extremely in depth into any one of them. Um, I, I, in fact, I, I covered them over the course of two chapters, um, but just to give you, uh, readers a, a little preview of some other passages I look at that, um, that contribute to this discussion, um, I, I, I begin with Ephesians 1.1, which is an odd place to start, um, and that is the omission of the recipients. And the reason I bring this into the conversation about empire is because uh, it could be assumed, perhaps, that if Ephesians was challenging the empire, that the omission of the recipients might be the result of, uh, of the author wanting to not associate the com particular community with anti-imperial sentiments, right? To sort of protect them, a protective measure to say, hey, I'm going to say some things here that are, that are uh, challenging to the empire, and I want to be sure y'all don't get caught up in it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the recipients out. That's actually kind of built off of the framework that, that the omission is, is an intentional uh, act and not just sort of an accidental one at that. So I begin with that in order to basically try to show where I won't land when it comes to the empire question with Ephesians. That seems to me to be an overly ambitious interpretation. So what I end up doing is offering just some alternative explanations, or at least an alternative explanation as to how we might make sense of the omission of those recipients while also taking seriously the Roman imperial context. So I, I raised the theory that maybe uh, a scribe was performing demnatio memoriae, which is the essential idea is to remove someone's name, to blot their name out from historical records. And, um, and I propose this as, as just a theory. It's not something I'm, I'm you know, a hill I'm going to die on, but an alternative to say here, this could be one way to take the Roman imperial context seriously while also not going this far with our anti-imperial reading. And so it's based some off of the idea that in, in Revelation, where we get the sense that the Ephesian community has lost something, you know, they've lost their first love or, or, or left their first love. Um, and then the idea would be that maybe this reflects a period in these communities where things weren't well, and that a scribe decided to pull their name out from it because as a sort of an embarrassment. 
Um, I raised some all, all sorts of other possibilities as to what, why that might or might not work, but that sort of just illustrates some of the kinds of conversation I want to have. If, if we wanted to read this passage as critical of the empire, we, we might go in this direction, but, but here's maybe a way that could either support it or challenge it and offer an alternative. So that's one of the places I go. Could you speak more into the subversion pieces that might be reflected in Ephesians, as, as I already know that you've You've dialogued through that before in, in some of your texts, but can you can you delve more into that as well and how household codes might show a sign of subversion in the book? Yeah, yeah, I can. I'll offer up a few thoughts on that. I do. I do want to say though, I, I want to. Uh, one thing I tried to be careful of in my work, and though maybe I'm hoping I did it, is to try to not suggest that we have to force imperial critical readings on all of these passages. But I'd, I'd like to offer up his possibility to say, um, there, could if the speech acts are heard as subversive or challenging various forms of ideology, um, how could that occur in this particular instance? So with the household codes, I, I, I engaged with um, Michelle Lee Barnwall's work uh, where she reimagines Kefale in a very interesting way. So the idea of the headship of Ephesians 5 um, and I also work some with um, with the Nero era because the, the head concept was being invoked by imperial authorities in the Nero era or by Nero in some very interesting ways, um, depict, depicting himself as sort of head of the Roman people. And what Lee Barnwall argues for that I think is really interesting is the idea that maybe Kefale, in fact, does mean the sort of hierarchical head that is often assumed in Ephesians. In fact, that's how the emperors were using it. Um, but when you get down to it and you read the sort of context of it in Ephesians, all of a sudden there's a, there's a reversal that happens and it's not in the grammar of the passage. It's not in the use of kephale. Kephale is just taken straightforwardly to mean head and even hierarchical head. But then there's this ironic twist when the hierarchical head of Ephesians 5 becomes Christ who gives up his life for the church. So then you get this sort of ironic reversal where, okay, yeah, husbands are supposed to be the head of the wife, but not like the emperor, say, would be head of the Roman people, but how Christ is the head of the church, which isn't merely barking orders at them. Um, and, and in this way, I, I, I follow her logic and challenge some of Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza's perspective on the passage, which I I do it with fear and trembling because she, you know, she of course is 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 absolutely um, um, rock solid when it comes to her work on gender and and, and stuff when it comes when it, when it comes to challenging some of the traditional assumptions in these passages. But she reads the passage as hierarchical, as this sort of, you know, wielding this authoritative and and even perhaps moderately abusive or or worse headship over the spouse. And I think that Lee Barnwell's reading of it provides an alternative there to see that there is this ironic reversal. So I can't say with, with some others, um, especially I think some um, who have rightly noted from post-colonial vantage points that we should be careful to, to not assume that when imperial-like language might be, might be reversed in the New Testament, that it doesn't also somehow accidentally or even intentionally reinforce it. Um, I think, which is some of where I, I think Schuster Fiorenza is, is going with it. Um, I, I find reasons though to, with, with Lee Barnwall to say, I, I think there might be more of this ironic reversal going on than what's often given consideration. So it certainly isn't giving a full stamp of approval on the imperial way of these household relationships. Well, at the same time, is this, is this anti-empire? I'm not sure I'd say anti-empire, certainly alter, alternative to maybe the empire. It's certainly unexpected. And, and some of my work in that passage shows the ways that this model for even Roman marriage would have been unusual and unexpected. So this is, I think, a good illustration, again, of a place where I would say not exactly accommodating to empire in the way we've often assumed but also maybe not, you know, blatantly and directly anti-imperial as has often been assumed, trying to sort of balance that out a bit. Hmm. 
I, I really like that. Dr. Lee Barnwell was one of our professors at Biola, Daniel. Yeah. And, uh, and so appreciate that, that reference. And I, I especially like this connection to uh, Kefale because mm. um, the first article that I ever, ever published was on Colossians on the Christ team. Yeah. And, and I argued that, you know, it represents Christ as a kind of exemplary regal figure over against mm. the typical sort of arguments that it's about wisdom traditions. And, and yep. I, I try to make this argument by pointing to some of the key terms in the Christ hymn, and one of them is kephale. Uh, mm. And I didn't draw upon the the discourse from Nero that would have been mm. e- excellent if I if I was aware yeah. of that to to further buttress my uh, my argument. But I'm but I'm curious, um, given given the close relationship literarily uh, between Colossians and Ephesians, given your work on on mm. Ephesians, yeah. um, how do you see that kind of of uh, maybe counter-imperial discourse sort of bleeding back over into uh, Colossians, or do, do you see some of that maybe uh, playing out in that letter as well? That's, that's a great question, and I'll, I'll answer maybe unsatisfactorily, but this was this was an issue both in my, in my defense of my dissertation when I wrote this and also in some comments when it came to um, preparing for publication with more Seaback. And one of the major questions is, can you even do this kind of work with Ephesians without also then commenting on Colossians because they're so interlinked? My, my, my quick answer to you would be, um, I don't know exactly because I didn't look at Colossians in detail. And that was, un, that was intentional. Some of it is because of number one, it, it's possible that the implied uh, recipients are different which, which we can't get into in, entirely. It's possible that the empirical authors are different. And then it raises questions on, on their borrowing, uh, one borrowing from the other. Um, it's also, especially in light of Ephesians' use of the Old Testament in ways that are unprecedented in Colossians, it's also possible that a whole set of, uh, for lack of better words, storylines are being invoked in Ephesians that aren't being invoked in Colossians. So it's a very interesting question as to if we conclude something about Ephesians and empire, what implications might that have for Colossians? But I really think it Colossians should be treated separately first, and then we could bring those into, into some conversation. So I don't mean to be dismissive of your question, except to say um, that I think there's good press or good, good reason, strong, strong reasons for treating the text separately to begin with, and then being able to explore them more um, more in detail later, but I'm thinking of Sylvia Kiesmont in particular. She would be the expert on this question, um, not only because of her and Brian Walsh's work um, on, on Colossians, but because she has begun producing more articles on the anti-imperial uh, approach to Ephesians. So she's done work on both of them. I have done work on one and not on the other. So, <laughs> so I'm going to uh, pause to say uh, I'm not an expert on Colossians. And I think that might be unsatisfactory to some to say that you need to tie the two in. But I have pragmatic reasons and, and theoretical reasons for at least separating the two initially. So it's a great question, John. I'm sorry I can't answer it. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's that's a great response. And it's all right because that can be your habilitation shrift. Exactly. <laughs> you can you can work on you can work on that one next. Exactly. So this has been a fascinating conversation. We appreciate your scholarship and just your thoughtfulness uh, as as we've discussed empire in light of the New Testament. So I guess my final question would be. Where do you see us uh, going in terms of uh, empire in the New Testament moving forward? Yeah, that's a, that's an important question. Um, uh, there's a couple of things I think that maybe need to continue to happen, uh, and and things that my project by no means provided the resolution of. Um, one thing I think that I'm I'm noticing is I think it, we need to continue to do increasingly better interdisciplinary work. Uh, so much of this conversation of empire in the New Testament requires drawing from, you know, uh, 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 theories of communication, um, Roman history studies, um, uh, uh, philosophical models and epistemologies, um, New Testament and theological studies. So you get all these various uh, intersections of disciplines. And I think one thing for me is it's been done in a bit of fear and trembling because I was trained pretty well in biblical studies and in, in New Testament studies, but I, I didn't take a lot of classes on Roman history. So in engaging the subject, even for my PhD work, I've had to 
make up some ground with areas and do it with a bit of fear and trembling, thinking, I, I want to be sure that I'm being fair to the data coming from this field. I want to be sure that I'm treating it appropriately and that I'm using the best possible resources and sources that I can. So we need to continue to, I think, do that interdisciplinary work to help broaden the, the conversation with Empire and New Testament. Um, I think also we probably need to do a bit more work on what the conventions of subversion were at, in, that, in those eras. If people wanted to challenge empire, what might be some of the ways that they do it? I think we've been stuck a little bit in assumptions that uh, subversion means this, challenging empire means this. And then when someone says no to it, they assume, ah, see, the New Testament's not concerned with empire. But there are a lot of subtle strategies for challenging, for, um, for displacing, for undermining, for mocking, for, <laughs> for subverting. And I think maybe some more intensified work on if someone wants to undermine ideology, how would they do it then? I've got all sorts of things I can draw from in my own present context, but we want to be so cautious to not become anachronistic in reading that back. So, so it's, that's a challenge for us. We need to do a little bit more work, I think, on some of the Roman uh, context of, of how subversion worked. Um, a couple of things I think maybe that, I, that I'd like to see just to close here. Um, I think we should continue to be cautious of pitting the New Testament's Jewish context against its Greco-Roman or Roman context, in that for a good part of the Empire New Testament discussion, it's been, is this particular passage invoking Jewish ideology or Jewish context, or should it be read through a Roman lens? And what I'm interested in is maybe we need to begin to think a little more about how the New Testament's Jewish authors used Jewish theology and ideology and the Hebrew scriptures in order to actually negotiate its Roman imperial context in various ways, some of which could include challenging the empire. So I don't think we have to pit the two against each other. Actually, we've got, and we got some examples, of course, of, of Jewish texts that, that do that. Um, you know, outside of the New Testament. So some of it would be to, to, to begin to have some nuance when it comes to talking about the contexts um, behind the New Testament, for lack of better words. Uh, I, one last thing I think that I'll add is maybe, I, th I think we probably need to begin to talk more about degrees of subversion or degrees of challenging empire. I'll admit I haven't had an opportunity yet to read uh, Najib Haddad's uh, Paul politics and new creation book in its entirety. But one thing I caught from his introduction, I think is extremely helpful as he comes from the outset and says, I'm not sure it's all that helpful to talk about Paul as pro empire or anti empire. And, and I think I'd maybe even take it a step further and say, well, um, I'm not really actually all that interested necessarily in whether Paul the person was pro or anti-empire. What I am interested in is do some of the speech acts in Paul's letters have moments where they may be challenging various forms of Roman ideology or reinforcing various forms of Roman ideology. And this is where I think when I pull from my own context, I, I think if someone were to ask me, are you pro or against, oh, I don't know, American government or something like that. Um, and that's such a complicated question. There are times where I would be against certain things. There'd be times where I'm for certain things. And so why couldn't Paul or any other person of their era have in some moments uh, a, a degree of wanting to challenge, subvert, or reorient, or undermine some ideologies that are present in their context for this particular audience in this moment? Well, at the other... And the other, in the other sense, maybe not doing it in that text with that audience, or even in the same text in this particular chapter where there's something else being addressed. So I do think that Hedad seems to be pointing us in a really good direction of being cautious of that sort of dichotomy. And what I mean by degrees of subversion also, just to end here, is you know we need to maybe begin asking, is subverting the same thing as undermining? Um, is criticizing the same as mocking. We, we need to maybe have a more nuanced perspective on kinds of subversion that could be happening that are maybe different degrees. Um, and that's where, uh, is, it, is it possible even that maybe placing honorific privileges on somebody that is deemed unworthy of it could be considered to be subversive? 
see, and those kinds of things aren't often brought into the conversation. It's more of like, well, is the empire being invoked here? And is this ideology being challenged or not? So we, we could see degrees of subversion. We could see subversion occurring on different speech act levels as well. And maybe it'd be helpful just to, to be hearing more about that. I hope my work contributes to raising some of these questions. Um, I know it has many weaknesses, and and if anyone ever gets a hold of it and has a chance to review it, I'm sure I'll, I'll have an opportunity to hear hear about some of those. And I really do look forward to anybody who who has the the, the graciousness to read my work. But um, but but these are some of the things I think that could benefit us in the in the larger discussion about empire in the New Testament. Well, that's that's really exciting. I really appreciate hearing all of the different ways in which this conversation could be clarified and extended. And um, it's it's exciting because it's 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 galvanizing. I think you know to to say okay, we've got a lot more work to do. We can be a lot more precise, and uh, it's it's exciting to see where this goes. But we're we're really glad that you join us to tell us about the work that you've already done, and uh, hopefully the work that you'll continue to do as you've. uh, clearly laid out this wonderful kind of research agenda, I think, in some ways. Yeah, and maybe I'll just end by, by saying I'm, I'm excited. There are there are folks other than myself, for sure, who are contributing to this discussion of Empire in the New Testament in some very nuanced ways. I think um, Haydad's work looks promising. I've really appreciated the work of Christoph Heilig. So anybody who's interested in sort of getting into some of the nuanced discussions here, you could certainly go to the, you know, the Barclay and the rights um, and find some of the more polarizing perspectives. Um, but uh, but folks like Christoph Heilig and Ajib Eda, they seem to be coming at perspectives where they're, they're nuancing it in ways that are extremely helpful. And I know uh, uh, Christoph has a, a new work coming out here very soon on Paul and Empire. Um, so, so keep that in mind as well, folks, if you're interested in, in looking at others. But my book should be coming out here, I think, in, in August. So um, it is one of those more Seebeck volumes. So unfortunately, it's, it's, it takes a little, little extra cash to get a hold of it. But if you're in academia, you know, get your library to purchase it and see if you can, you can preview it that way. But I appreciate it. And if anybody has anything they'd like to chat about, uh, shoot me an email or, or contact me. I'd love to talk more. Brilliant. Well, thanks again for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 